This is NP Voices. I'm your host, Steve McLaughlin. In this episode, we'll share some previously unaired interviews with past guests on NP Voices. Roger Craver from The Agitator, Amy Sample Ward with N10, and Jeff Brooks with True Sense Marketing will all be here to share their unique perspectives and insights. We'll also be joined by Chuck Longfield with Blackbaud to discuss some of the challenges with data analysis. That's all next on NP Voices. First up is Roger Craver with The Agitator and Donor Trends. I asked Roger to share his perspective on some of the recent media reports about alleged improprieties by some charities. This has been a 12-month period where the issue of the use of donors' money and the cost of fundraising have merged through a series of fairly spectacular and not always accurate exposés on the part of the media, beginning with Anderson Cooper's uh, expose of some by veterans organizations and animal welfare organizations and culminating about a month ago with a huge investigative report from the Center for Investigative uh, Reporting and the Tampa Bay Times and CNN titled The 50 Worst Charities where they identified both the charities and the companies and solicited the money. And in that case, I've, I've spent literally hundreds of hours looking at their research and they, they did a, just a unbelievable job. So there is misrepresentation and fraud out there. It's it's small compared to the total amount of money that's raised in America. It amounts to about a billion dollars compared to the $300 billion that is uh, that is raised annually. But because of the press notoriety, it, uh, it has triggered quite a bit of revelation and questioning. And the questioning is is a little more is a lot more prominent in our industry now than it was a year ago. I don't think it's much more pro- uh, prevalent among donors. This this stuff doesn't uh, doesn't affect donors very much, although the industry worries that it uh, that it does. What the principal question is going to is what is the role of the professional associations like the AFP and the DMA organizations like that in terms of monitoring this and blowing the whistle and what is the role of the watchdogs such as uh, Charity Navigator and the Better Business Bureau in terms of monitoring this and what measures do you use to monitor it and it's an extraordinarily complicated uh, subject and at the end of the day I come down saying that donors deserve as much transparency as possible and I put a lot of the failure for this not so much on those trade associations but but on the nonprofits themselves for not explaining to donors how money is raised and how it costs money to do business and why investment is necessary we have a we have a very dickensian uh, 19th century england view of charity, that it's alms for the poor as opposed to a very sophisticated business of, uh, of action and technical skills that go to helping beneficiaries but require an inordinate investment and requires paying people properly and following good business practices. So there's, a, there's sort of a knee-jerk or instinctive resistance on the part of the press and, and the part of the watchdogs that says if you're spending money or if you're paying people too much money, according to their judgment, not industry standards, then then somehow it's wrong. 
but the, the, the reality is that you cannot be effective as a charity in terms of your mission unless you are investing, getting a return, and putting that return to work. So it, it's an extraordinarily complicated issue. It's given to, uh, to a lot of emotion. It's given to a lot of defensiveness in the industry, which shouldn't be defensive. This is, uh, I mean, I've worked most of my life in political fundraising, so I can guarantee you that the nonprofit fundraising field is a hell of a lot cleaner and less full of misrepresentation than the political field. But the, it's, it's a complicated issue, and you're right to say, will it last or not last? I think this time it's going to last because I think there are, there are a lot of young fundraisers who, uh, who don't understand how these people get away with it and why they get away with it. And I think there will, be, there will be pressure not only on the trade associations, but ultimately pressure on the regulators to get their act together. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible regulatory scene. It's, it's a mishmash. The, the states are in charge of it. They have very little resources to, uh, to do the consumer protection that has to be done. The IRS is less interested in this than it used to be. So, and so it's, uh, it's, it's very much up in the air, but it, it, it is not something that's going to be uh, let, let go by the media. I, I'm sure they're going to stay on this. Next on NP Voices, Amy Sample Ward, CEO of Enten, talks about how she got started working in the nonprofit sector. To go back to the very, very beginning of both time and my life, and that is to, to think about my parents. They both saw contributing to society as an important thing, and we were raised to volunteer and participate, but also even think about what you were voting for. You know, I remember even in elementary school, we'd have like family family discussions about what do these ballot measures mean and how do our laws shape our communities, etc. So I was very lucky to have parents that cared a lot about the social space. And so when I got to college, for me, it felt like, well, this is great that I'm learning these really interesting things. And I was in a new media program. So obviously, years ago, new media meant something different. Um, <laughs> you know, we were, we were using terminal to ping URLs and see what the uptime was, which is terrific that now I know how to do, but wasn't necessarily today's version of new media. And, you know, it felt like I was learning these new ways of communicating and sharing information, but I wanted to be working. You know, I wanted to be out there in the social space, not just learning, but also contributing. So once I got to college, I actually got a job for a domestic violence organization that provided safe shelter and, you know, legal services, et cetera, for victims and children, domestic violence, which is a very intense mission, very important work. Um, and I was there to, you know, work on the communications team as well as lead some of their outreach and engagement programs. So it felt like this perfect melding of, you know, I would show up to work and be like, we just learned this thing today. I'm going to directly apply it to this organization. And for them, you know, I was by far the youngest person that was working there, but also the only person who really recognized that technology was going to serve us versus a thing that we just had to deal with. And so it also turned into what I think a lot of nonprofit, you know, quote unquote, accidental techies experience is you turn into this kind of quasi teacher liaison, you know, representative of technology within the organization, helping people learn how to use these tools in a way that is totally not threatening, because ultimately, I wasn't a technologist, but I, I kind of saw the light. And so it was then my responsibility to help people 
figure out that they could also be using these tools and, and be more effective or efficient in their work. And after that, I was basically hooked. There was no way you could get me to work on anything that wasn't applying technology to making better impact. Now I want to revisit a recent interview with Jeff Brooks from True Sense Marketing. I asked Jeff to talk about some of the similarities and differences between traditional and digital media. One of the things digital has that print and traditional media don't have is uh, you can make complex things more simple. So in, in digital, you can have things like Kiva, where you can actually zero in on a specific person in a specific place doing a specific business and give to that. There's kind of a whole generation of new charities based on that. Yeah, right? your ability to just scale the personalization in an infinite level yeah. is perfect right. for digital, would never work in the offline world. Right, it would be far too complicated, which just wouldn't work. And no, even child sponsorship, which you really can't sell in direct mail, it, it just, uh, not enough people sign up, works pretty well online and part of the reason for that is that donors can search with a lot of handles on the search. I want a child of this gender, of this age range, from this country, and I want them to be cute. So, you know, they can actually look through the data and pick the kid they want. And uh, that's pretty powerful. And that's that's a huge advantage that uh, we have in digital that we don't have in other media. And in a way, I kind of, that, that's a bright, shining beacon of hope because that we've seen over the past few years that uh, direct response response rates have been dropping, not dramatically, but they've been you know trending downward really since about '05, right? Yeah, and that's kind of scary because uh, that's that's our big source of income is direct mail. So to to watch it kind of fundamentally drop, you know, not everybody, but wide enough that it feels like more than just you know an organization getting it wrong here and there. It's it's actually kind of it's in the environment well we're sort of we're living in this transitional period between uh, you know one media type on the decline and another on the uptick and we've not seen that you know in a long time i mean you have to go back to the telegraph to you remember when the telephone took over the telegraph to see what that did to the world but this is i think this causes challenges but i guess what i think you're saying and, and i've seen in a lot of places is the basic rules are the basic rules don't get distracted by if it's ones and zeros or a physical paper. What works works, mm-hmm. you know. But you got to test and you got to do some of these things. But sort of stick to your principles. Yeah, and I guess I would go back to the earlier principle of do what others are doing because the the, the large organizations, the agencies, the consultants, they are testing and they are learning stuff. And when you so when you see something that's fairly commonly done, there's a good chance it's that way for a good reason. Now, it's what's interesting is that. One of the differences between online and print is that things change more quickly in the online world. So what might be a principle for, you know, this year might not be as strong a principle for next year. Whereas with direct mail, there's like, you know, there's this body of knowledge that really doesn't change, you know, over the course of one's career. Yeah, that rate of so change just might be increased than, than other types of things. Yeah, and, you know, it's because the, the, the medium is, because it's technology-driven, it change, the medium itself changes and people's use patterns change as a result. You know, so people are reading their email instead of on a desktop, they're reading it off their phone. That that's a pretty meaningful difference in your interaction with it. So that you know, we we just because you learn a truth, you test something and learn that it works this way, it doesn't mean it will still work next year or you know, in in the future toward the end of your career. That's the big challenge there. The other one, I think the biggest deal of all right now is the way direct mail and the web are tied together in the way people respond. You're having huge numbers, in some cases 30 or more percent of direct mail recipients going online to give. That's 
kind of freaky. You know? uh, they didn't. We didn't used to have something like that where, where the the audience could cross a media channel on you. And and it might be a, a part of the drop in response rates. It's not drop in response rate, but a moving of response to the other media. Yeah, people are just shifting channels. I mean, humans are multi-channel, and we're just right. seeing that accelerated by online and mobile yeah. and other factors. You know, you only have to look at your own self. I mean, uh, neither one of us is quite donor age yet, but we use the internet to do everything. And it's kind of like, I don't know how to send a check through the mail anymore. I almost can't find a stamp or I don't know where the mailbox is. You know, so you can imagine as we become 65 and 75, we're just going to do it online. And so that we're seeing, I think, the leading edge of people changing that behavior. And I don't think we've adjusted to it very well yet. You know, look at your mailbox. Look at a piece of mail you got from a charity. Go to their website and see if it looks like it's the same charity. And I'd say two-thirds of the time it does not look at all like it's the same charity. And you can't find that offer if you search all day because it's not there. And it's because the, the online channel and the direct mail channel are being run in different silos. And they are assuming that they're different audiences like this old people and young people. Well, it's, it's not. And I think that's a, a huge lost opportunity where donors are wanting to go online and give, but then they land there, and they're not even sure they're in the right organization. It doesn't look the same. It doesn't feel the same. It doesn't use the same language. Huge problem. And yeah. then, you know, beyond that, um, so many giving pages are not functional. They don't follow best practice. They're too complicated, too hard to use. You know, I, 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 always, I like to talk about if your direct mail reply coupon was as complicated as your online reply page, you'd be screaming up, jumping up mad with, well, who the heck did this? Yeah, did this who built event? this contraption? Yeah. It, it's, it, of course it doesn't work. <laughs> and yet it just goes on online and uh, doesn't get fixed and doesn't get fixed. Well, I think a lot of times it's just, again, if do you have the expertise to know that adding that extra field, while you don't think that that's a big deal, it does impact conversion rate. And ultimately, that is the purpose of a donation form. It is to drive someone to give, not to collect every piece of information about that individual since birth. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's a good example there where there are too many fields. A figure I've heard, and I don't, I don't know how accurate this is, but is that for each additional field that you didn't really need, you lose ten percent of response. So if you put your if you put a phone number field on the page, even if it's not required, you're driving a certain number of people away because they don't want to fill that out. So if you have country and where did you hear about us, you have all this stuff that you want to know, you know, for legitimate reasons you want to know, you might be losing your shirt because you're just driving too many people away. Finally. Here's Chuck Longfield, BlackBot's chief scientist, discussing the challenges to analyzing big data. Most data analysis, and, and I wish it wasn't this way. I really do wish it because there's nothing about me that wants me to be in a unique position to do this. But data analysis at the end of the day is really hard. And I know people a lot of times that are out in nonprofits or in other fields feel that it's really hard and, and often blame the tools that it's hard. And, you know, there's certainly some legitimacy to that. But even if the tools weren't hard, the actual analysis is hard because almost every time you ask a question and you get an answer, it begets another question. And too often that next question 
isn't able to be answered with the data that you have. So you actually have to sort of go through another full cycle of go get more data and um, or look at the data in a finer level of detail or code it differently. And then you're always susceptible to errors, errors of omission. Is there data that you don't have? Statistical errors? Are you running something? Excel errors? I mean, I think the comical thing is that there was a Harvard economic study that, that uh, for the past 10 years, the world has used about what debt ratios that governments can have. And when debt gets too close to 100% of GDP, the, the country is screwed. And the Harvard guy that did that study that governed, you know, 10 years of worldwide economic decisions made an Excel error that a graduate student at a local college in Massachusetts discovered when he was trying to replicate it. And the Harvard guy doesn't dispute it. There was, there was an Excel error in the spreadsheet. And so it's just, this stuff is really hard and you need to be able to do it multiple ways. I, you know, when I do data analysis, I always comment that I want to get at each number two independent ways to assure that it's correct. Because when you, when you just go check your work, then you do it one way and you check your work, you know, well, you already made the mistake that way, you know, if there's a mistake there and checking your work too often, you're not going to catch the mistake. But if you do it a completely different way, then, um, then you have a greater likelihood. So, but anyways, just to suffice, suffice it to say, it is hard. And, and so when you draw conclusions, you know, a lot of times, you know, you might have gotten an answer. It's just not the answer. That's it for episode 10 of NP Voices. I'd like to thank our guests, Roger Craver, Amy Sample Ward, Jeff Brooks, and Chuck Long. This episode is brought to you by the letter S. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.